the best thing to do um, is because this is the 18th Torah portion of the Torah cycle, is to do a little review of, or at least a real short uh, um, review of what's going on here. The Bible is first and foremost, it's the story of the creation of a people, a nation. And that nation's purpose is to reveal God to the world. We begin the Bible with a very short story, a very short story of the creation of the world. And immediately after that, we are immersed into the story of the creation of the Jewish people, the lineage from Abraham to Noah to Shem. I'm sorry, from Adam to Noah to Shem to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Moses. It's all the story of a form formation of a people that God uses to reveal himself to the world. The story of the Exodus is a miraculous redemption that God orchestrated to give his people liberty. Our Torah portion this week, Mishpatim, which, like I said, is transmitted or translated as judgments or, or rulings, gives us a detailed instruction of how God expects his people to function. No society can function long-term without a clear understanding of its culture and the laws that govern that culture. As we will see today in Mishpatim, God's culture is one of justice. Um, the Midrash Rabbah, I brought this because uh, if you haven't seen a Midrash Rabbah, it's pretty cool. It's a 10-volume book or so, or ten volumes of commentary on the Torah. And it, um, it begins, in fact, let me, let me do this before I get, go any further. These, these are my resources, of which the Midrash Rabbah was not, uh, was not um, put in there, because I did these slides beforehand, and as you're putting these things together, you um, sometimes come up with stuff at the last minute, you know. So this Midrash Rabbah kind of added, actually, this morning. Um, but Jeffrey Enoch Steinberg's book, uh, uh, Tim, Hoog, Tim Haig's book, I'm sorry, uh, FFOZ's Daniel Lancaster, and I also am, have got to do a lot, because of so many commandments are in this week's Torah portion, from the Book of Mitzvahs. And the Book of Mitzvahs is another 10 volumes section of books that actually goes into detail of each of the 613 commandments. And of course, I always use the Art Scroll Humash. So anyhow, from the Midrash Rabbah, Midrash Rabbah it had an, a, very, a very, very profound introduction. The beginning of this, tour, this week's Torah portion is, says, is uh, it begins like this. And these are the ordinances that you shall place before them, it says in Exodus 21.1. The Midrash Rabbah opens its discussion of the Torah's monetary laws, the ordinances, by citing a verse from the Psalms. Psalm 99, 1-4. through 4. And this is what it says. Adonai is king. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned on the kerim. Let the earth shake. Adonai is great in Zion. He is high above all peoples. Let him praise your great and fearsome name. Let them praise your great and fearsome name. He is holy. Mighty king who loves justice. 
You establish fair justice and righteousness in Yaakov. What is the connection between the two phrases, the mighty king of justice and righteousness in Yaakov? What the verse means to say is, when is the attribute of might ascribed by people solely to the Holy One? Blessed be he. At the time when he implements judgment against idolatrous nations, which is what we're going to have happen in the Messianic age. For you so fine in regard to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of Babylon. Because he became arrogant and he proclaimed it was himself through his own power that built Babylon, the Holy One, blessed be he in Daniel, said in response to him, Wicked one, who originated as putrid secretion. You became arrogant and you said you built Babylon with your powerful strength and for the honor of your splendor. And you did not recognize that all is mine and the strength that you possess is mine and the splendor that you possess is mine. All might belongs to the king of king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he. And yet he loves justice. And he gave this justice to Israel because they are his beloved ones. God founded fairness for his loved ones, Israel. For by virtue of the monetary laws that we are given this week, you gave them. Even when they have a conflict with, it, with each other, they come to a court of justice and thereby make peace, shalom, between themselves. It's beautiful what the Lord has given us through his laws, how we are to live as a society. FFOZ for um, Torah Club 1 introduces this Torah portion in this way. And these are the judgments which will take place before them. The first three chapters of this Torah portion deliver a legal code of laws and commandments that form a nucleus for the Torah's laws. The last chapter tells a story about how people in Israel consented to keep those laws and entered into a covenant relationship with God through a series of rituals conducted by Moses. This portion is one of the most mitzvot-filled Torah portions containing 53 commandments, 23 positive and 30 negative commandments. Included are laws that are regarding the Hebrew manservant and the maidservant, manslaughter, murder, injuring a parent, kidnapping, cursing a parent, personal injury, and on and on and on. Oppression of widows, children, and orphans. It's just a, an, a litany of laws, just several laws. The portion contains laws about lending money, not cursing judging, judges or leaders, tithes, firstborn sons, justice, returning straight animals. It just goes on and on and on, all the things that are covered this week. Mishpatim concludes with a promise from Abraham to lead us into the land of Israel, safeguard our journey, ensure the demise of our enemies, and guarantee our safety in the land as we live there. If we uphold the Torah and perform the mitzvot, Moses makes preparations for himself and for the nation, and then he ascends to Mount Sinai to receive God's word. Note that this is the Parsha of Shavuot. 
because that is what we celebrate on Shavuot. It's just the giving of the Torah. The Hebrew um, word sefer, which means book, sefer habrit, means book of the covenant, the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant is the Torah. The art scroll Humash introduces this Torah portion this way. It says the juxtaposition, or the contrast, of this sidra, sidra dealing primarily with civil and tort law, with last week's Sidra, which was dealing with the Ten Commandments, if you recall, provide a startling insight into Judaism. To God, there is no realm of religion in the colloquial sense, the natural sense of the word. Most people think of religion as a matter of ritual and spirituality. Western man differentiates church and state. The Torah knows no such distinction. To the contrary, all areas of life are intertwined and holiness derives from biblically correct business dealings no less than piety matters of ritual. The sages teach that one who wishes to be a chesed or a devotely pious person should be scrupulous in matters of civil and tort law for in Judaism the concept of temple is in the courtroom as well as in the synagogue. In other words, Judaism does not separate church and state. The sages derive that the seat of the Sanhedrin, the 71-member court that is the supreme authority over halachic matters, should be on the Temple Mount near the temple itself, for both the temple and the Sanhedrin are expressions of holiness and the worship of God. A judge who correctly rules is considered a partner in creation. And one who rules corruptly is a destroyer of God's world. It's quite natural, therefore, that immediately after carrying us through the, the recognition of God's power, through the miracles of the splitting of the sea and the revelation at Mount Sinai, the Torah commences to the laws that seem almost mundane in character. They are not the least bit mundane. They are as much expressions of God's greatness as the first commandment, which proclaims God's existence and sovereignty. The point is graphically illustrated by the first group of laws in the Sidra, that of the Jewish bondservants. Even the most degraded men and women are created in the image of God, and their treatment is as carefully regulated by the Torah as the procedure of the temple service on Yom Kippur. Rambam comments that the civil law is an extension of the Tenth Commandment, which forbids covetousness. In order to know what we may not covet, one must know the rights and property of others. Elaborating on the concept, Sophorno comments that the above commandment states that one may not covet anything that belongs to his fellow, so the Torah now goes on to begin defining what it is that belongs to others. Tim Haig had a, um, a, always a solid introduction to Torah portions, those of you that read his works or know who he is. He says, our Parsha begins with the words, these are the ordinances. Vele ha-mishpatim. Mishpat is translated as ordinance. It literally means judgment. 
In other words, these are God's assessments, his judgments in the terms of how relationships within the Torah community are to be lived out. We are faced, therefore, with a clear and simple decision. Will we accept God's assessments regarding proper relationships, or will we set them aside for our own? Will we trust his, his way or lean upon our own understanding? Mr. Haig has introduced that to summarize that describes our current society, which is one of individualism and selfishness, not capable of selflessness. If we are to live in a community that follows the Torah, we must embrace the concept of selflessness. That is not to say that we should be socialist. Capitalistic, free, republic, democratic societies that operate under the laws of Torah will practice selflessness, selflessness and they'll take care of their less fortunate. This week's Parsha lays out exactly how that is to be accomplished. Jeffrey Enoch Feinberg um, introduces the Parsha this way. Parsha Mishpatim judgment spells out Sefer Habrit, which is the Book of the Covenant or the Torah, instructing judges on case law for, society rule, for a society ruled by Torah. Rulings enact legislation derived from the founding principles. Asret he debrot, which is the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, God spoke to all Israel at Sinai. Built upon the exodus from slavery, this society must always remember to protect the liberty of its citizens. Even those citizens who have hard-heartedly reduced themselves to slavery, and the way they would do that is by either stealing or being convicted of a uh, crime in the courts, and they didn't have the money to pay their debts, so they sold themselves to pay their debts. All of them are all freed on the seventh year. Underlying the principles such as freedom from oppression and compassion from the four, from the po for the poor undergird the foundations of a society in covenant with the Lord. Restitution or economic remedy must accompany apology for all offenses. You, don't just, you can't just apologize. You have to have restitution. Fair compensation derived from case law is derived from the principle of measure for measure. What, where the rights of citizens conflict, the rights of the needy take precedent. Judges are not to show partiality to protect the poor or the rich. Rewards for covenant loyalty include overflowing blessings, superior loyalty, superior obedience, and all these are rewarded with super blessings from God. Rabbi Feinberg always begins his uh, commentary with a poem, and they're always pretty, cool, pretty cute, so I'm going to give, do his, you know, recite his poem. In Mishpatim, God told us to obey, make wise judgments to live his way. Slaves work for six years, then send them away. Don't take a life or with life you'll pay. Your judges must vote, their conscience is true, and rule with fairness, not just for the few. We all cry aloud, then up Sinai's peak, Moshe enters the cloud. That phrase, is translated as we will do and we will hear. In other words, the, the nation of Israel, when they committed to God, said, do first, 
and understand later. So in other words, they accepted the Torah in all of its complexity without reading the contract first, trusting God, and then would figure it out later knowing that what God was doing was for their own good. Judaism is often said to be a religion of deed rather than of intention. Though overly simplistic, this description reflects the centrality of the mitzvot, the commandments in Jewish life, as well as the rabbinic conclusion that in most cases a person who performs a mitzvah without focusing on its significance has nevertheless fulfilled his or her religious obligation. This understanding of Judaism as a religion of action is encapsulated by the biblical verse in which the Jews standing at Mount Sinai signal their acceptance of the Torah with the words, Naseh Nishema. We will do, we will hear, and understand. In other words, the Jewish people promise first to observe the laws of Torah and only afterward to study these laws. In traditional Jewish culture, this statement has come to epitomize the Jewish commitment to the Torah. As you go and you study the laws of Torah, you start to, if you deeply dive into the laws of Torah, you really start to see how great they are and how deep that God thought these things out. And many of them, you think, apply to that time when they were given, but most of these laws, they all apply today. All the laws still apply today, and they have applicability to our lives. I invite all of you to study this concept, to dig into it. You know, it's, it, it, I know it's time-consuming, but it's, it's, it's very well worth it. Um, FFOZ Torah Club 2, which is Shadows of Messiah, always look at things from the point of view of the Messiah. And they, they take this concept as far as their introduction, or they take this approach as their introduction. This Torah portion contains a list of commandments and guidelines for the exercise of righteous and justice. Our Master Yeshua declared justice to be the first three weighty matters of the Torah. First of the three weighty matters of the Torah. In Matthew 23, 23, he says, these three in order, justice and mercy and faithfulness. The twin concept of righteousness and justice stand like pillars at the center of the Torah. Messiah and the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness can be understood as the fulfillment of legal and moral obligations. In the judicial sense, it implies an exonerating verdict, not guilty. Justice can be understood as the fair administration of authority, rightly deciding between contestants, rightly rewarding, and rightly punishing. God loves righteousness and justice. They support his throne, which is founded upon those two qualities. A good king brings peace to his kingdom through righteousness and justice. Torah Club 5 introduces his Torah portion this way. Several of the laws of bringing the case before Ha Elohim, which is before God, that's what that means. This seems to imply that the supreme judge would settle legal matters. But the context indicates that the Torah envisioned a human court of judges. Numerous commandments regarding dispensing justice fairly and testifying honestly make it clear that a human court is in view. Some English translations choose to translate Ha Elohim as God, while others choose to translate it as judges. 
Perhaps both are correct. Jewish thought does not sharply distinguish between the domains of civil, moral, or ceremonial law. They are all God's law. They are all God's Torah. An ancient Israelite judicial court was also a religious court. The legal issues they debated and decided pertained to the interpretation of the Torah. God was at the very center of the Torah's legal system. To appear before a Torah court of law is to appear before God. For the Torah court dispenses God's law. Modern Western readers find that the laws of the Torah may be harsh, primitive, and otherwise maybe distasteful. The laws reflect a different world from our own. When the Torah begins to speak matter-of-factly about the institution of slavery, about selling one's daughter, about repaying measure for measure, it disconcerts the modern reader. He or she is tempted to comfort themselves with the notion that the unpleasant laws have been done away with by the New Testament and replaced by kinder, gentler, and maybe even nobler values. On the contrary, the mouth of God spoke every commandment of the Torah. Human society may change, but God never changes. Each mitzvah is holy and eternal. Every commandment distills his essence and communicates a pure revelation of, of his person, of God's person. The study of the commandments is the study of the Torah. As soon as we began to disregard the commandments, we begun editing God and reshaping the Almighty into an image we deem more appropriate for ourselves. The Torah contains both law and revelation. It provides a rule of conduct, but at the same time, it expresses God in human terms, terms we can understand. If a person realizes that Torah is God's own self-disclosure to the world, he will appreciate the enormous gravity of declaring that same Torah null and void. Even the smallest commandments of the Torah is just covered with godliness. To declare a commandment irrelevant or obsolete defines the eternal and unchanging nature of God. The Talmud reminds us that the Torah was not given to angels. Instead, God gave the Torah to a flawed and sinful group of human beings. The Torah speaks directly into human society with all its wrinkles, and it speaks in a language of the flawed and imperfect in order to infuse godliness into the world. It has descended from a very high place, from God and his heavenly throne, to a very low place to man here on earth. Yet it is still retained its godly essence. That godly essence might be wrapped in, a, in garments of human concern, such as the laws of slavery and compensation for negligence. But if one takes the trouble to unwrap the commandment, truly unwrap the commandment and dive into it, it will blaze forth in his hands with the brilliance of heaven. Um, so, way too long of an introduction. But this is the way the Torah portion begins. These are the rulings you are to pre present to them. If you purchase a Hebrew slave, 
he is to work six years, but on the seventh he is to be given freedom without having to pay anything. So the Torah begins with a lot of laws and commandments this week. It's just much more than a legal code. The word, word Torah, as I've said many times, means instruction. The laws and the commandments found in the Torah are God's instructions for how he wants his people to live. The Torah is like a user's manual for life. Of the 613 commandments that, are, that the sages traditionally derive from the Torah, more than 50 of them are found in this week's Torah portion, as I said earlier. 53. What is the concept of grace versus law? And I know that Cheryl's taught a lot about this in the past, um, so I'm not going to go into it very heavily, but it's very important to understand here because of this week's Torah portion and what we're studying. The grace versus law concept is really derived from the writings of Paul. Was Paul teaching believers that they did not have to keep God's rules or God's commandments? In Paul's day, many of the Jewish believers taught that before Gentiles could be part of the kingdom of heaven, they needed to become Jewish. Before they, be before they were saved, they had to become under the law or become Jewish. Paul believed that Gentiles became sons of Abraham and part of the people of God through their faith in Messiah alone. They did not need to earn that status by becoming legally Jewish. They did not need to first come under the law in order to enter the kingdom of God. The Bible does not actually teach the idea of grace versus law. Grace is God's free gift of salvation to those who believe in his Son. Law is his loving instruction for how his people should live. That's the difference between the two. They are not meant to be opposed to one another. They're meant to work hand in hand. Things get backward if we start to believe that we must keep God's law in order to be saved. Instead, we should keep God's law because we are saved. There are four different types of law. One of them is called a mitzvah. Mitzvah is the broadest Hebrew term for a word, commandment. It comes from the Hebrew word zavah, which means to command. It can be used to refer to any mandate that God gives. In a common usage, it is often rendered as a good deed. The other uh, type of law is called mishpat. The Hebrew word mishpat is translated as ordinance, but it would be better translated as judgment. Its root word is shifat, which means to judge. The name of this Torah portion is the plural version of this word, which is mishpatim. Mishpatim is understood as a legal code or legal judgments that may have been issued by a court of law. They may be seen as civil laws and case precedents. Tim Hegg does a good job of describing Mishpat. He says this. These are God's assessments. His judgments in terms of how relationships within the Torah community are to be lived out. We are faced, therefore, with a clear and simple decision. Will we accept God's assessments regarding proper relationships, or will we set them aside for our own? Will we trust his way or lean on our own understanding? The third... Um, type of 
commandment is a chuk. The Hebrew word chuk is pronounced like the word hook, so it's, it's probably hook, cook. Not like the word chuck. According to traditional interpretation, it refers to a commandment that has no rational explanation. We have these in the Torah. For example, the commandment to not murder is reasonable and rational. You can understand it. A lot of logic to that. The logic behind the commandment to not wear a garment made of wool and linen, though, is more obscure. A hook. Did I do that right? Yes does not need to make sense to us. It is simply a mandate of the Almighty. Since we trust the Almighty to only do what is good for us, we trust the commandments we do not fully understand and follow them with the same focus as the ones we do fully understand. Now the rabbis tried to understand them all. So when you, if, if you read into the, um, the book of mitzvot and you dig into them, they'll have explanations to, to, to all of them, whether they're right or wrong though, you have to discern for yourself. The last one is the word Torah. Torah means instruction. It can be translated as law, instruction, or teaching. It might refer to a single law, a certain category of laws, or the entire five books of Moses. By whatever name we call them, the commandments of God are all his wise and loving instructions for his people. In Exodus 21, 2 through 6, if you purchase a Hebrew slave, he is to work for six years. But in the seventh, he is to be given his freedom without having to pay anything. If he came in single, he is to leave single. If he was married when he came, his wife is to go with him when he leaves. But if his master gave him a wife, she bore him sons and daughters, then the wife and her children will belong to her master, and he will leave by himself. Some of the most difficult laws to grasp for us in our society today are the laws of slavery. In North America, our collective memory of slavery is ugly, and mostly, most around the world is that way. People were kidnapped, maltreated, bought and sold, subjugated to all sorts of cruelties, and denied basic human dignities. Whenever we study the Bible, we need to remember issues of context. Two important matters of context must be considered in regard to the Bible's laws about slavery. First, we must consider that the Israelites had just left slavery. All the Bible's laws about slaves are meant for the protection and well-being of the people that are enslaved. God did not want the Israelites to treat their servants the same way they themselves had been treated while they were in Israel. The second point of context is the realization that slavery in the ancient world was a real and normal part of the economy. If you were not a landowner or independently wealthy with your own flocks and herds, you probably had no secure means of supporting yourself or your family. For the landless lower class, servitude was an attractive option. It offered the acquisition of meaningful skills, lifelong employment, and food and shelter for a person and his family. The issue being dealt with here is one of economics. As the wider context makes clear, damages, and restitution. Often in the ancient world, a person became a slave or servant in order to repay debt for which he or she did not have the ability to pay. In Israel, however, six years was the maximum for such an arrangement. 
The sabbatical year marked the release of all slaves. One might say that since slavery has been abolished, the Bible's laws of slavery are irrelevant to our modern world. That is not the case. If we remember that the slaves in the Bible period were roughly equivalent to employees in today's economy, we can learn several things about God's heart. The Torah would have us treat employees fairly, with dignity and worthy compensation. The laws of freeing one's slaves are an appropriate introduction to the laws that follow. The people of Israel were free men now, and their relationship with the law should be of voluntary compliance, not of forced compulsion. Mamamides summarized the laws pertaining to owning a Hebrew slave under the categorical commandment, abide by the law of the Jewish slave, positive commandment 232. The commandment encompasses several individual laws regarding slavery. Strictly speaking, the commandment specifically applies to Jewish owners of Jewish slaves in the land of Israel and only when the laws of the Jubilee year can be practiced. Since the Jubilee year has not been practiced since the return from exile from Babylon and the beginning of the Second Temple period, the laws of the Hebrew slave have not been applied. Jewish interpretation makes it illegal for a Jewish person to own a Jewish slave today. Even though the laws of the Jewish slave do not apply to non-Jews or people outside the land of Israel, the laws still have pertinence to believing slave owners. The principle of the law of the love of one's neighbor, the principle of the brotherhood of the disciples of Yeshua, and the principle of one to another make the ethical concerns of the laws relevant to the believer, especially when a person's slave is also a brother in the master. In the apostolic era, it was not uncommon for believing slave owners to have believing slaves. The apostle spoke directly to such a circumstance. The owner of a Jewish slave could not work his slave harshly. He needed to treat him as a hired laborer. He also needed to release him after six years of service, or in the Jubilee year, whichever came first. The Torah's laws regarding one, how one must treat a Hebrew slave were so stringent that the sages said, he who acquires a Hebrew slave acquires a master. Imagine that. He must be equal to thee in food and drink. You are not allowed to eat white bread while he eats only black bread. I'm assuming black bread would be molded bread. You are not allowed to drink old wine, which is the better wine, if he drinks only new wine. You are not allowed to sleep on a feather bed while he sleeps on straw. Hence it was said, whoever buys a Hebrew slave is buying a master for himself in the Talmud, Kiddushin 28. The Book of Mitzvot, um, it's a 10 volume, volume collection of books. It uh, details all of the um, 613 commandments. Any commandment that you don't understand, you can dive into that, have a little time on your hands. It does take a while to dig into and, and, and understand, but it, it, it is worthwhile. In the early times, it was possible under certain circumstances for one Jew to purchase the rights of another Jew to serve him as an Ered Ivri, which is a Hebrew servant, who must perform 
the work of his service without compensation. We are now digging into this law, mitzvah, mitzvah 42, the Hebrew servant. Just to give you an idea of, of, of how this, this um, commentary goes into the understanding of, of commandments. If there is uh, two situations where someone will become an Eved Ivri. If one stole and did not have enough money to pay back what he stole, he could, in certain circumstances, be sold by the best din, which is an uh, Israeli court, as an Eved Ivri, a Hebrew manservant, with the proceeds of the sale used to repay his theft. If one's financial institution was so desperate, or his situation, financial situation was so desperate that he did not have enough money to buy food and had nothing left to sell, he could sell himself as an Aved, Aved Ivri. Only an adult man could be sold as an Aved Ivri. A woman was not sold for her theft, nor could she sell herself as a maidservant. In certain situations, a minor girl could be sold as a maidservant but the laws governing her service and termination of her service are not the same as that applies to the male servant. A male minor could not sell himself, nor could he be sold as an Ivri by a Bestin or, or, or um, Israel, Israelite court, or anyone else for that matter. The Sefer, the Sefer, I'm sorry, Hakonuk, which is the Hebrew word for the book of education, it's, it's simply known as the chinook, the, the chinook, hope I'm saying that right, is a work which systematically discusses the 613 commandments of the Torah, similar to this book of the mitzvot. It was published anonymously in the 13th century. Here's how you spell it. In 13th century Spain is where, where it came out of. This work's enumeration of the commandments is based upon Mamadi's system of counting as per his sefer, Hamit's Zavot. Each is listed according to its appearance in the weekly Torah portion, and the work is structured correspondingly. So the commandments of this book's the same way, the uh, Book of the Covenant. It begins in where, where the first commandment appears in the Torah, and it goes all the way through the 613, so it's going with, along with the Torah portions when they're listed. The book separately discusses each of the 613 commandments, both from a legal and a moral perspective. For each, the Canuck's discussion starts by linking the mitzvah to its biblical source and then addresses the philosophical underpinnings of the commandments. Following this, the Canuck presents a brief overview of the halakha, which is uh, Jewish law, and governing its observance, usually based on Mamadi's Mishnah Torah. Mishneh Torah, and closes with a summary of the commandments application. So this particular application is the, uh, the underlying purpose of this commandment of the Hebrew manservant is this. Among the underlying purposes of this mitzvah is that God desired that his nation Israel, whom he chose from among other peoples of the world, should be a holy nation, replete and crowned with all good and exalted qualities, as the heavenly blessing will thus rest upon them, kindness and mercy are among the finest qualities that a person can attain in the world. Therefore, he enjoined us through this mitzvah to have mercy upon one who is under our authority, such as the Hebrew servant, and to bestow upon him kindness 
in accordance with the laws written in this Torah passage regarding the servant, as well as the accordance with the oral law that we know through tradition. The, applic the application of this mitzvah, the mitzvah applies to all men but no women, for a woman may not purchase a servant. The significance of this, in keeping with his approach to the many other mitzvahs, Kunuk explains that this mitzvah is based on the need to exercise compassion toward others, especially those that are less privileged in less privileged circumstances. Acting compassionately serves to develop character traits of kindness, decency, and mercy. Ramban, in his commentary to the Torah, introduces additional concepts relating to the specific details of this mitzvah, which constitute basic principles of our faith. He explains that showing mercy to a servant and releasing him from bondage serves as a reminder of our enslavement in Egypt and subsequent redemption by God. Additionally, discharging a servant at the beginning of the seventh year after six years of service parallels to the Sabbath, where we rest on the seventh day after working the previous six. Like the mitzvah of resting on the Sabbath, this mitzvah serves as a testimony that God created the world in six days and rested on the Sabbath. The significance of the ideas expressed in this mitzvah gives its place of prominence as the first of the ordinances presented to the Jewish people after the Ten Commandments. This is the first commandment that's given to the, to the Jewish people after the Ten Commandments that were given in last week's Torah portion. Indeed, many generations later, this mitzvah was singled out by the prophet Jeremiah as one of the most basic obligations of the Jewish people, one whose violation was sufficient to cause their exile from the land of Israel. Let's end this um, examination, and let me tell you, there's 53 of these things in this week's Torah portion, so you can spend hours on each of these commandments uh, evaluating these things. So this is just, just one commandment. Let's end, end it with, with uh, Daniel Lancaster's uh, take on it, because sometimes he just does a really good job of breaking it down in language that we can understand easily, you know? Peshat, I guess you'd say. The laws of the Hebrew slave reveal essential truths about God, Mr. Lancaster says. They teach that God desires a liberation and redemption of his people. It pains him to see his people reduced to servitude. He fixes a limit to their suffering. The laws of slavery teach that God protects the integrity of families. Even a slave has rights and cannot be forcibly separated from his family. Messianic Jewish teacher Ariel Berkowitz asked, how would we know about it? How would we know what it is to serve the master of masters if we did not know what godly slavery looked like? In other words, the laws of slavery reveal an aspect of God's character that is essential to understanding our relationship with him. Um, running out of time. So I don't want to go too deep in uh, too many other commandments. Let's do this. Freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. Instead, we have now become slaves of God. We were bought with a price. We legally belong to him. When we come to know God, we desire to serve him voluntarily. We do not want to leave his household. 
We don't want to follow the commandments of God because we have to, but because we choose to. The gematra, the gematra, you know what the gematra is, I guess? It's, it's the way the Hebrew language is numbered. Of the ivred ivri, the Hebrew servant, is equal to the gematria of the Mashiach, which is Messiah. The law of the permanent slave speaks of our lifelong commitment to Messiah. The apostles refer to themselves as servants of Messiah. The life of discipleship is the life of commitment to a single master. The owner of the Hebrew slave takes him to the doorpost, the mezuzah, to drive the all, all through his earlobe when he chooses to stay. Deuteronomy 6.9 instructs us to write the words of the Torah on the doorpost, the mezuzah, of your house and your gates. Jewish people observe the commandment of the doorpost by writing the words of Deuteronomy 6.4-9 on a small parchment roll that is placed into a scroll case on the doorpost, and that scroll is called a mezuzah. Many Messianic believers observe this custom. The slave who says, I love my master, I will not go, go out, enters into a lifelong service beneath the mezuzah on which these words are written. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Likewise, we demonstrate our love for God by our love for the master, by going, giving our lives in service of him forever. May we not go out from the doorpost of our house all the days of our lives. All right. Um, many other laws, and if we were doing a, a Torah teaching in the afternoon where we had hours, hours and hours, I'd go through more of them, but we don't. So we're, we're going to go to um, to this. Let me. The pilgrimage festivals. This is in Exodus 23:14. You know, anytime you um, study a Torah portion, it's broken down into seven parts. I've told this many times, but but you can take the seven parts and you study each one of them and go from part to part to part, and you you, you can, you know, put it all together and, and have a, a. But but it takes time. It takes time. So when we do a Torah class, a lot of times that's what we will do. All right. The uh, pilgrimage festivals are mentioned in Exodus 23:14. Three times a year you are to observe a festival for me. Keep the festival of matzah for seven days, as I ordered you. You are to eat matzah at the time determined in the month of Aviv, for it is the month that you left Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Next, the festival of the harvest, the first fruits, or your efforts are sowing in the field. The last, the festival of ingathering, the festival of Sukkot, at the end of the year, when you gather in from all the fields the results of your efforts. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the Lord. And that was in, the, in this week's Torah portion. Um, so we're getting Yankee gear a little bit here. The ratification of the covenant is, 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 is given to us in Exodus 24.3. Moshe came and told the people everything Adonai had said, including all the rulings. The people answered with one voice. We will obey every word that Adonai has spoken. Israel, Israel stood under the mountain on the first Pentecost on Shavuot to strike a covenant with God. The Lord gave the Torah to Israel as terms of the covenant so that he might become their God and they might become his people. 
Covenant making is a formal ceremonial affair. Exodus 24 tells the story of the covenant rituals that ratified the Sinai covenant. The thing that we most understand about covenant is wedding. A wedding ceremony is a covenant ceremony. At the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses invited Israel to enter into this covenant ceremony with God. The Jewish wedding illustrates the elements of covenant making. It begins with a contract, I talked about this last week, called a kutubah, stating the terms and conditions incumbent upon the bride and the groom. Most cultures, cultures have some equivalent exchange of vows or some other nuptial contract. After the ceremonies, the families of the bride and the groom celebrate the wedding with a meal shared between both families. The wedding feast symbolically seals the relationship between the brides, grooms, and the families. Jewish um, religion or culture anticipates a shared covenant meal in the age to come. The book of Revelation refers to that meal as the wedding supper of the Lamb. All these things are taking place in this week's Torah portion. The, the 70 elders have gone up the mountain to have a shared meal with God to ratify this covenant. It wasn't just Moses that saw God. The Parsha goes on to describe the burnt offerings and the peace offerings that Israel made with the Lord. The blood covenant that's sprinkled on the people. And describes how the 70 elders, as I just said, actually went up on the mountain and actually saw God. And what did they see? They described it like this. The people of Israel made a covenant in the presence of all the host of heaven and the Lord himself to follow God's Torah. By doing so, they committed their future generations to do so. They described it like sapphires. And in Exodus 24:11, it says, And they saw God, and they ate, and they drank, and they sealed the covenant with a shared meal. And at the end of that, Moshe went up into, into the, onto the mountain. And this is the way our Parsha ends today. Exodus 24, 15 through 18. Moshe went up upon the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of Adonai stayed on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moshe out of the cloud. To the people of Israel, the glory of Adonai looked like a raging fire on the top of the mountain. Moshe entered the cloud and went up, went up on the mountain. He was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's the way our Torah portion ended today. And that's the way I'll end today. It's 11 o'clock. It's time to end. Um, before I uh, do end, I want to make an announcement, and I'll do it again at the end of our service today, okay? Um, Passover's coming up. Passover Seders are coming up. And, and as a congregation, what we've done in, in the last couple of three years is we have not held a um, communal Seder where we do a Seder here, you know. Um, and the reason for that is that um, in the Bible, Rabbi has, has, feels that it's um, incumbent upon us to have our own Seders, to have, have small group Seder meals, small group Seders. But we, we haven't done a good
good job of communicating that last couple of years. And there's people that get kind of left out of having seders. So if you um, don't have a place to go for a seder, if you're new, if your family doesn't celebrate a seder, but you want a place to go for a seder, I put a sign-up list in the back so we know who all needs a, a seder to go to. And, we, and we, if you are hosting a seder and you have room for others in your seder, please let me know that as well so we can match up folks that live close to you. On the, on the sign-up sheet, I put a place for your name and your location where you live so that if certain people are having a seder close to you, you won't have to drive as far. But it just depends on, uh, on, on how many sign up and, and what we can do. But we're going to try to, you know, have everybody matched up to a Seder so we can enjoy. This is a very important commandment, and um, it's a very great experience to go through, too. So we would hate for anybody to miss out on, on a Seder. So, all right. So let's close with a prayer. Alvinu. Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this, this great Torah portion and the, um, the wisdom that you place upon us with this, Father. Help us all to draw nearer to you, to learn from this, and to apply this to our everyday lives, that we may be people that follow you and follow your word and exhibit that to all those around us. May everyone that comes in contact with us see you and us, my Father. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right.